Hello and welcome to another episode of the Electrical Apparatus Show. I'm your host, David Miller, and I have with us here our managing editor, Selena Cody, and I think we have another great show in store for everyone today. Um, so in conjunction with our July issue, which was, um, of course, themed in accordance with electric vehicles, um, it is our EV issue, uh, today we're going to be discussing any potential prospects um, that EVs may or may not offer to our uh, repair and service people. Um, we're also going to be touching on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and how they differ from typical EVs, uh, which is a topic that is actually going to be featured in more depth in our upcoming August issue. Um, so that's a little bit of an advanced tease. We're going to give you a kind of taste of what's to come in the August issue. I think it's appropriate to discuss in this context because, again, it does very much link up with the electric vehicle theme um, because, of course, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles are very similar to electric vehicles. But, you know, later on we'll, we'll get into the similarities and the differences and the, the prospects either or might offer for uh, repair and service people. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that here today and we'll, we'll uh, have more for you to read in August. Um, uh, I, I think uh, it's also worth noting, um, before we go forward any more, that while we have a typical show for everyone today, next month, and that will be August 15th, um, we'll actually be changing up the format a bit. And so uh, we're going to be doing some on-air interviews with outside sources, um, particularly um, talking about pumps. Um, that's going to be in conjunction with our water issue, which is August, but I think it's appropriate to say, and I think you would agree with me, um, that really more than it's a water issue, it's kind of a pump issue. Yes, I mean, right. the two of them do go simultaneously. Obviously, yeah. when you're dealing with fluid, you're dealing with pumps. Um, but I, I actually think it's more appropriate to call it the pump issue. Um, mm -hmm. um, so, so we'll be exploring the growing prevalence of, of pumps um, in the, I suppose you would say, portfolio of work service and repair shops do. Um, shops that are seeing more pump work than they did in the past. Mm -hmm. um, maybe in some cases, um, manufacturing plants have fled their regions and they've um, transition their businesses to work on pumps instead, even where manufacturing remains. In some cases, we see um, process manufacturing growing in prevalence, whereas discrete manufacturing, the manufacturing of, of you know concrete objects and whatnot, uh, uh, declines. Uh, so instead, we see you know food and beverage, pharmaceutical um, things where you're, you're engaging in these these process, this kind of process manufacturing. You're moving fluids around and you're mixing things together and so on. So you see more pumps there, and you see. Um, for that reason, a lot of people uh, seeing an uptick in pump work. So we'll be we'll be talking hopefully to some pump experts, um, maybe potentially some um, actual shop guys, some guys who work at shops who service pumps. Um, and I, I hope that will be exciting for our listenership to be able to hear it from someone other than us, to be able to kind of you know you know um, get the boots on the ground perspective. So. Um, you know, without further ado, I think we can just kind of get into the content we have mm -hmm. for this month. So I'm actually going to start by turning it over to you, Selena. Um, you, along with our senior editor, Kevin Jones, mm -hmm. uh, did the cover story for the July issue uh, the, on, on EVs. Yes. Um, that, you know, so uh, you covered, of course, uh, well, you and Kevin, I should mm -hmm. say, covered... Um, municipal bus fleets that are that are now electrifying and whether or not those 
present any service and repair prospects, right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that. Of course, yeah. So the, the cover story is kind of double-pronged. Kevin uh, did this uh, EV bus uh, story, which came first, which is really interesting. Uh, if you might have thought that, uh, I mean, when we talk about electric vehicles, I mean, the first thing everyone pictures is a, is a commercial vehicle. It's a, maybe it's a Tesla, maybe it's not. Uh, but it's, you know, your standard, uh, car that you, you take your kids to school, you go on uh, a road trip, but, uh, electric vehicles are more than that. Um, they're getting bigger and bigger and we're starting to see electric buses become popular. So Kevin investigated a little bit into these municipal bus, uh, programs. Uh, there are a couple across the country and they're all having, you know, varying <laughs> degrees of success, uh, as, you know, any kind of governmental program might be uh, across the country. And uh, I think he, his primary goal was to see, is this a market that, um, you know, repair guys can tap into? And the answer, unfortunately, does not look to be uh, yes as of yet. Um, I mean, local government, uh, you know, they're trying to keep everything inside for the time being. Uh, and as it is, you know, there aren't very many electric buses out there. I mean, in Chicago, we have two, and we've got, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of buses running in Chicago, so the two versus hundreds isn't very many. And in a couple states um, across the country, there are very similar. It's just pilot programs as is. So um, for now, they're they're keeping a lot of repairs and stuff in-house, and, and more than that, uh you know, instead of repairing, they're just opting to replace because, I mean, there are so few at the time being. However, as this scales up, as we see more and more EV buses, you know, uh, it might not be practical to keep uh, these repairs in-house or these replacements. I mean, it might just be easier to say, hey, let's have a guy or let's have a shop that knows how to do these repairs and, and perhaps we could see some kind of uh, partnerships going on. Um, as this becomes more popular, and, and this is a slow-moving process, you know. If you want to do something fast, you don't do it in government, but uh, it is a good mm -hmm. test run <laughs> uh, of what this could look like, um, you know, in a few years, because, uh, it, I mean, there's no real rolling it back now. It's happening, and uh, I think that he, he talked to uh, the folks in Albuquerque. They're the only ones having, like, a real tough time of it, and I think it's a, a combination of of poor pat batteries, uh, for some reason they've got some bad batteries, and also their their particular weather concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the the particular hot, dry uh, climate yeah. down yeah, there in the southwest. The lithium ion batteries can be very finicky yes. um, in extreme weather conditions, whether it's extreme hot mm -hmm. or extreme cold, right? Yeah. So we're working out those kinks, and by we, I, I don't mean me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean people far more qualified than I am are, are working on those kinks. So. Um, it's something to keep an eye on, but not something to jump on too quickly, unless, you know, you know a guy in local government, uh, in your department of transportation, <laughs> then yeah, be my guest, you, can, you know, <laughs> you can, you can get some contract work, but, but, and it's, it's not just the vehicles themselves, right? It's the charging infrastructure yeah. um, that requires repair, right? Yes, that is the, and you've talked about that in the past, mm -hmm. actually, uh, we've covered EVs for, Gosh, I don't know when our first EV story was, but it was in the past two years, I would say. If past you, two years, I think we. If you put me on the spot, so we've been uh, we've been trying to take different angles here and really see if this is a viable area of of coverage for us, a viable area of service for uh, our readers. And you have written about charging stations in the past, I believe. Um, 
Yes, I have. And I think, you know, obviously here we see that right now it's not presenting local repair and service shops in the areas where these buses have been deployed with much work. But I don't think that necessarily means um, it won't in the long run. I suspect um, that these early adopters um, that, that have these very mm-hmm. small sort of pilot programs in, through their local governments are, are probably, um, first of all, um, risk-averse because this is a new technology and they, they are doing it um, on a very small scale or deploying it on a small scale. Um, they probably want to do more of it and they probably know if it's an unmitigated disaster um, that it will become so unpopular that they won't have the opportunity to do more of it. So I would imagine that would incentivize in-house repairs because it gives them more control and oversight over the process. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they were to contract it out to a third-party uh, private repair shop, you know, privately owned and operated, uh, they not only do they lose control of the endeavor, and as we know, governments are very interested in maintaining control of anything they can. That's mm-hmm. kind of what they do. <laughs> powers will be powers, just like in the mm-hmm. private sphere, one one seeks to, you know. Uh, maximize their control. I, I think the same happens in government. Um, but, but uh, you know, not only are they they seeking then to maximize control, um, but there it, it might be the case that that these privately owned and operated repair shops don't have any experience mm-hmm. um, servicing these buses and this infrastructure, and so that makes them um, doubly nervous. And so it's a little bit of a double bind because you you have. You know, the repair shops can't get any work because they don't have any experience with this type of work. And they can't get any experience with this type of work because there's not enough of it. But I, that, that's a very common double bind when a technology first gets off the ground. And I imagine that slowly but surely it will amend itself and eventually you'll reach a kind of tipping point um, where, where the growth becomes exponential, right? Once you get over that initial hump, it's like getting off the ground is the hardest part, uh, if that makes sense. And and so I, I, I wonder, though, um, I wonder, too, if it's the case that given that this is um, such an early stage endeavor and given that it's happening through local governments, I wonder if the governments doing it are particularly liberal, quite frankly, because they would have more of an interest in these technologies. And, and if because of that, they're less business friendly because that's something that happens. And so that also is leading to where these buses have been deployed. They're not really interested in bringing, uh, bringing in private contractors. But I, I think that what you often see and what probably you would see with this, and maybe I'm wrong, but this is my perspective from you know having looked at this stuff for a good few years, is that as these initiatives grow more mature, um, those running them become more open to outside contractors um, and, and they, they are more comfortable bringing in outside contractors, subcontractors, and because there isn't such a need for, for that kind of um, oversight, if that makes sense. And another thing that's interesting, too, that I, I think we can touch on more later is um, you mentioned the problems they have with the lithium-ion batteries with, with their storage degrading in extreme weather conditions. Um, interestingly, that's something that, that we can touch on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles um, potentially helping to um, skirt because one of there are many disadvantages quite frankly to hydrogen fuel cell over lithium-ion battery um, you know powered vehicles uh, but one of their advantages is that they get around the issue of power degradation and in, in certain extreme weather conditions whether it, 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 it's hot or cold but but in any case we'll, we'll get into that um, more later I think 
I mean, I was about to ask you about your, your hydrogen fuel cell uh, article that you're um, working on for the August issue because, I mean, we see with both uh, electric motor vehicles and the hydrogen fuel cell, um, you know, a trend toward bigger and bigger vehicles, um, which is something I think you touch on in your article uh, in that, you know, hydrogen vehicles are actually more viable in a, in a larger fleet. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, 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 no, well, no, that, that is, no, I, I guess you're right. I guess this is a good time to, to transition into that. Um, so I, I guess the first thing to say is that to understand any of this, you would have to kind of understand the difference between a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle and, and what we might call a typical um, electric vehicle. So there's EVs and then FCEVs is how I see the acronym played for hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles, and there's not a lot of clarity uh, on on for some people on exactly how they differ. Um, it, it's not terribly complicated though, and and I, I want to again. I think I already said this, but I, I want to say that in the August issue, which will be out the first week of August, we have a, a big piece on on um, hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles. But um, they're an old idea. Um, it's not a terribly new idea, but it's it's gaining some traction recently. I think in uh, 2017, they had a Super Bowl commercial for the Toyota Mirai, I think it's called, which is a, mm-hmm. a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. But only um, in California. Yes, only being sold in California. Um, I, I, I think that so far deployment has been very limited um, for passenger vehicles, but they exist and they're out there. Um, essentially, they are the same as EVs. They are electric vehicles. But instead of deriving power from a lithium-ion battery, which would be charged at some sort of electric charging station... They have a tank um, containing hydrogen, which is then converted to electricity using a device called a fuel cell inside the vehicle. Um, That hydrogen, of course, has to be synthesized, or I guess not synthesized, you would say separated. You know, it's, it's, so hydrogen doesn't occur on its own in nature, not on Earth, at least. Apparently there's like hydrogen floating around, you know, out in outer space somewhere, but on Earth, there's no hydrogen that occurs on its own in nature. So typically in the past, they produced hydrogen using natural gas as a feedstock. Um, but increasingly now, what they're doing is using a process called electrolysis, to, or electrolysis rather, um, to create it. And they, what that does is it runs an electric current through water, H2O, and it separates out the O2, leaving only the hydrogen. And so then that hydrogen would be put into a vehicle's hydrogen tank, and then the fuel cell, as opposed to the lithium-ion battery, in the vehicle would convert that hydrogen back to electricity. So you're going from water to hydrogen to electricity to your car on the road. And, and as you can imagine, of course, and probably we have an engineering-savvy audience, far more engineering-savvy than me, at least. I'm more economic. I'm more political. But... You know, um, what I'm sure our engineers that are listening are thinking is that this has got to entail tremendous efficiency losses. You're converting it back and forth and back and forth. You're using electricity to get the hydrogen out of the water. You're using more electricity to get the hydrogen back into electricity. How can this be efficient? And that's true. There are efficiency losses, um, which is one reason, of course, that among others that will be discussed in the August issue, um, that people don't see much of a future for hydrogen fuel cell, at least 
um, in the realm of passenger vehicles, um, consumer passenger vehicles. I think Elon Musk called it, you know, he said, so like, mind-bogglingly stupid or something. Yeah, that sounds like But that. at the same time, there are advantages um, to hydrogen power, not just to the fuel cell vehicles, but to hydrogen as a potential medium for energy storage um, as well. Um, so one thing which we touched on is that you see in Albuquerque, where it's hot, and also in Michigan, where it's cold, as we've explored before, that these lithium-ion batteries break down. They lose their charge. That's not going to happen with hydrogen. Um, another issue that hydrogen potentially solves is that it's faster to refill. You can refill. It's a, it's a physical substance. It's, you can refill your tank with hydrogen molecules in about as long as it takes to refill your tank with gas. As many people know, this is not necessarily the case with electric vehicles. There are fast charge stations that are incredibly high voltage that can charge cars up fast. But generally speaking, if you have a home charging station or you have an even medium voltage charging station, it can take hours to fill these cars to the point where people are like parking at the grocery store. They're charging for an hour while they're in the grocery store. There are some convenience issues with this. And I think the goal with the charging stations is to offer people perpetual charging because they're always charging while they're doing other things. But as you can imagine, that requires a huge rollout of infrastructure. You don't roll out the infrastructure. You can't sell the vehicles. You don't sell the vehicles. You can't roll out the infrastructure. It's costly. And that's why I think we've seen adoption of EVs being so slow. And we, we touched on that earlier too. Now we're getting over the hump. We're getting over the hump, but it's slow and it's, it's painful. Um, so there are some advantages of hydrogen. It would it would be useful, by the way, not only for vehicles but for like um, renewable energy, um, for intermittent sources of energy where they're trying to store energy in these huge battery farms. Um, it would be incredibly valuable to be able to store up energy in the form of hydrogen over the winter when the sun isn't shining and not have it degrade so that, or rather, over the over the summer when there's too much sun, and then so when the winter comes and the sun isn't shining, you can you can have it stored up like a squirrel stores nuts, you know what I mean, for, for, the, for the dark season. Um, it could be useful there. And so it's interesting. You kind of see, like, is there much of a future for hydrogen fuel cell passenger vehicles? Well, most people think probably not. But to, see, to have the technology being deployed this way sort of gets it familiar with it, with it, gets it developed, and maybe somewhere else it can be used. Um, so... And I, I think here's a good point to, to, to sort of transition into the actual infrastructure that allows hydrogen to be produced um, so that it can be put into a vehicle. Because um, you can't transport this stuff easily, frankly. Um, it's already, you're already undergoing efficiency losses and converting it back and forth. Um, and so an issue is that if you were to have to move it in tanker trucks... Um, this would make it even less efficient. You have to cool it, apparently, um, to transport it into a fluid. That's incredibly energy-intensive. Um, it's not very easy to send through pipelines. There's a lot of issues with leaking and safety. And so um, what we've seen where there are hydrogen filling stations for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles in California and in Europe, some in Britain we've seen, and in California where a lot of this stuff, you know, finds its first deployment in these, these pilot cases, um, is on-site generation. So there are some shell stations that generate hydrogen on-site, which they then pump into vehicles. And so um, they have electrolyzers at the shell gas stations. And what these electrolyzers do 
is they pump water from a municipal line um, into um, an, electro- an electrolyzer, which shoots electricity through it, separates the hydrogen out, stores it in these huge tanks that are, that are nested behind the station, um, and, and uses a compressor to, to reduce the volume of them where possible. Then, from there, it gets pumped a very short way, you know, 10, 20 feet to the filling station, uh, where a vehicle fills up with hydrogen. Um, why this is relevant is because obviously there's a lot of infrastructure there. There's a pump, there's a compressor. Um, I don't know who services this infrastructure, um, but I would imagine um, that should these spring up, you know, across the country in more locations, that eventually there would be service prospects for service and repair shops who I would imagine know how to work on that equipment. Um, Problem is, like we said, we don't think they're going to catch on for passenger vehicles, and most people would tend to agree. But they could be useful for municipal fleets, exactly like the fleets of electric buses you were talking about. Also, you know, fleets of freight trucks, commercial fleets, things like this. Larger vehicles um, might be better served by hydrogen fuel cells. Um, And there's a few different reasons for this. Um, One of the big ones is, of course, you're not going to have a lot of luck getting all of these individual decentralized gas stations to invest in this costly infrastructure to have electrolyzers on their premises um, for vehicles that aren't even really sold en masse yet. Um, But a company that only needs to build um, one large electrolyzer for a fleet of a couple hundred vehicles that are all going to dock in one place um, might get more bang for their buck out of it. So they could reap the benefits of hydrogen-powered vehicles without having to take on the excessive costs and without having to rely on the relatively fickle consumer demand that may or may not adopt consumer hydrogen vehicles because they know we're going to buy 100 you know, freight trucks that are filled with hydrogen. We're going to all dock them at this station where we have our electrolyzer. They know what to expect so they can financially manage the whole affair much more effectively. It's less risky. Um, and then they could derive the benefits of hydrogen is that they're going to be sending their freight trucks or buses or whatever around knowing that the power in them isn't going to degrade, um, knowing that they can they can fill them with hydrogen that is largely locked to local electricity and water prices. It's, it's going to, once the infrastructure is down, the cost of filling would be the cost of electricity and water, which is probably cheaper than gasoline, right? Um, and again, they only have to build one large depot for God knows, maybe 100 vehicles as opposed to having dozens and dozens of these, you know, hydrogen-filling depots at gas stations all across the country. Um, so we, we could see it um, taking hold in the realm of freight vehicles and in the realm of electric planes, which is a kind of tangent topic that I, I don't know much about, and we haven't covered it much, but people want everything electrified these days, right? They don't just want electric passenger vehicles and electric freight vehicles. They want electric planes now, too. Well, um, Something that's difficult with electric planes, of course, is that the lithium-ion battery is very heavy, and that thing's up in the sky, and so they have some trouble with the engineering from what I understand. Hydrogen is actually lighter than air. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were to use hydrogen rather than a lithium-ion battery to store power, um, there seems to be some thought that you would have more luck with an electric plane. Yes, but there's the problem of the Hindenburg. When we, don't, we don't talk about the Hindenburg. <laughs> yeah. When you start I, discussing I think, hydrogen I, I think, flying vehicles. Yeah, I think you're going to have a PR blockade there. Yeah. Um, you're going to have trouble with buy-in from people who are very nervous about such a thing. 
um, remembering the Hindenburg. Um, but, you know, they find a way around those issues. But the, the point here, I think, is that um, these, these, um, these large vehicles, these larger vehicles, getting outside the realm of passenger vehicles to buses, freight trucks, larger vehicles... I think that's really where, in the future, if there's going to be an opportunity for our service and repair people, uh, where the opportunity is going to be. So it's good to know not only um, where larger EVs are going, um, you know, such as the bus fleets that you and Kevin wrote about uh, last month, but also where, where hydrogen filling infrastructure might become a part of, of these commercial fleets um, because there might be some prospects for service and repair um, for those those hydrogen filling stations too, um, but I want to I want to kind of punt it back to you, Selena, because it's important um, to think about this stuff not just in regard to the infrastructure, whether it's charging infrastructure for EVs or filling infrastructure. We say, I suppose, for hydrogen vehicles, um, but when we get into these larger vehicles, the which have larger motors, the vehicles themselves begin to present more repair and service prospects, right? You talked to a guy, Keith Klontz, who yes, kind of filled Keith you in Klontz, on this. Yes, uh, president of Advanced Motor Tech uh, and a big EV guy himself. Um, but yeah, so buses are the next stage forward with uh, EV motors, as I was discussing. You know, uh, we start with the commercial vehicle, and then we go into the buses, which are bigger. The motors are bigger. The big problem with the EV motors on the, the commercial vehicles is that they're just small. They're really small. They're a lot smaller than anything, uh, you know, a traditional repair shop would uh, see in their shop. Most people opt to replace those because, I mean, what's the point? It takes very specialized work to work on one of those motors. Uh, you really have to have an eye for it. You really have to want to do something really challenging with your time uh, to work on one of those. As we move into buses, the motors get a little bit bigger. Um, those are more medium-duty vehicles, uh, which means that there are more opportunities, but they're still not the same uh, caliber of motor that, you know, we see in an industrial facility. However, uh, you know, the next step from that, because the CB thing, we're not putting it back in the bottle anytime soon. Uh, we're just going to keep making bigger and bigger things electric. Uh, those heavy-duty freight trucks that we see um, for cross-country delivery, for all sorts of things, really big vehicles, mm -hmm. those are probably going to have motors that um, are very familiar to those in repair shops who work on industrial motors, uh, and that could really present some opportunity for mm -hmm. repair. However, this is a ways away. We're barely starting the bus thing now. There's, just because there are some buses out there doesn't mean that it's an opportunity quite yet. Uh, when I asked Keith, uh, he, I don't know if you'd want me to put him on the spot, but he said maybe 20 years before we even start seeing I something see. like that. Um, but, you know, it is something to look ahead uh, at and, and to think, and I mean, it'll probably happen. <laughs> Whether or not you can wait, that's a different story. So what I get is the bigger motor is more likely to be repaired as opposed to replaced, yes. but also these bigger motors are more akin to the industrial motors yes. that, that shops may be accustomed to than these very small specialized EV motors. Exactly. And, and I understand that the, the work done on on these these motors and EVs um, has to be to a much higher standard yes. than work done on an industrial motor. Not that not that our shop guys don't do very good work on industrial motors, but you have to think mm -hmm. if if you do work that's subpar on an industrial motor, what happens? It breaks down. You call the guy back in. He fixes it. Oh, we we flubbed mm -hmm. it here. Let's get it back into mm -hmm. shape. 
But if a, a motor, good. if a yeah. motor in a passenger vehicle isn't worked on properly, skirt, right? Someone's going off the road <laughs> and into a ditch, and like, yeah. oh, you've got some legal liabilities on your hand. You just killed this guy, <laughs> right? So it's a lot. There's a lot more pressure on oh, yeah. properly repairing an EV or an automobile in general mm-hmm. than something in an industrial setting. There's a lot more danger and risk, and I think that was something that way back when, when we talked to. Eddie Goodsir of Mac and Mac Electric, which is a a, a, a motor shop, a, a service and repair shop up in, gee, somewhere in the Northeast. Is it Oregon or Washington? No, 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 no. I think he was in. Oh, I think he was in Washington. Okay. Now, I, don't quote me on that because I'm not sure. But he said, you know, he I was offered. He he does work on EVs, um, and I asked him, you know, what his advice for other shops looking to make the transition work. And one of the things he mentioned was that there are some some different legal standards you have to abide by. Like if you're doing work on a motor in an industrial setting and you have to, um, for instance, um, tack on some additional kind of work and tack that onto the bill, you can just do that without consulting the client. But there are laws in place that so that if you haven't expressly discussed with your customer um, what you're going to do on a vehicle and you tack it on, um, without informing them, tack it onto their bill, um, you can actually be um, put under legal scrutiny. Mm-hmm. There, there's regulations, and I, I don't know the legalisms, but there are regulations in place preventing that. So you're, you're under much um, tighter scrutiny when yeah. repairing an automobile for a variety of reasons um, than you are when working on you know, infrastructure or something industrial. Mm-hmm. And so he said he had to get used to that in order to make sure he was doing it right to avoid being in a sticky legal situation, really. Yeah. So there are some... some some um, yeah, uh, and Keith Klontz administrative and legal hurdles yes. to navigate here. Keith uh, emphasized that point as well when he spoke to me. I mean, you're just beholden to all sorts of new vehicle re- um, regulations that it, you would be surprised even exist. I mm-hmm. mean, they want you to dot your eyes and cross your t's every step of the way, and if you don't, I mean. Regardless of whether a terrible crash happens, which you never want to happen, uh, you can still get in a lot of trouble, even if everybody ends up okay. Yeah, it's just a, it's a totally different field mm-hmm. of endeavor. And on the on the other hand, you know, I guess what we see here is a is a mixed bag. Um, there's been some speculation about whether or not there's anything in EVs for for people who read our magazine, um, for ESA members, and so on and so forth. Um, and it, what it looks like is it's still a ways off, but it's something to keep your eye on and something that we can't definitely write off, even if it's still in, in the future. One thing I would note that comes to my mind is when we're talking about these large freight trucks um, is that even if that's a ways off, um, should they offer work prospects um, to our shop people, um, that could be a huge boon because I would imagine that the early adopters are going to be these massive companies like Amazon that are on the cutting edge, mm-hmm. and they're doing an unprecedented amount of shipping all across the country, right, with with what they do with the, the this, like, next-day fulfillment. I mean, um, you can go out on a highway and see, like, those Amazon vehicles just zipping. You, you can hardly go out on a highway without seeing them. So if they were to invest in a, in a large fleet of these things... Um, you know what I mean? It would be a ton of work to be done, and they would be getting crazy mileage driving all around the country. The only thing I worry about is if it was a giant company like Amazon, would they monopolize their own repair? Would they keep it all in-house? It seems that the the Amazon mentality is to keep everything in-house, is to have total control over everything. So I guess you do have to worry about something like that. And, and that's something we've written about, too, is how do smaller third-party shops get in on this when increasingly you see these, like... Um, 
vertically and horizontally integrated companies that do everything, um, you know, on their own. But I guess that's a topic for another time. I think that, um, uh, you know, I want to actually kind of cap this show off today. I know this episode has been a little bit shorter than some of our past content. I think it's about half the length. Usually we go to about an hour. This has been about a half hour. Um, but I think it's okay because we have an extra special show planned for August. Uh, uh, like I said, um, we're going to be interviewing some some pump experts and we're going to bring in some outside expertise so that it's not just Selena and I rattling on and on. And hopefully that's going to keep things fresh and, and provide something of value to our listeners that um, you and I can't necessarily always provide directly. Um, so in addition to teasing that upcoming um, August podcast um, with our pump interviews. Um, I also want to, uh, you know, do a little bit of teasing for the upcoming August issue. So, um, August podcast will go out August fifteenth. Um, shortly before that, you'll have the August print issue out. Hopefully, the first week of August. That's when they're supposed to arrive, at least. Um, so, you know, again, we're going to be talking more about hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. There's a big story. We'll rehash some of what I've talked about here, but I think there's also a lot of additional information um, there that you don't get in this interview. Um, we're going to be talking about um, pumps in pharmaceutical production, right? Uh, process manufacturing, that's going to be the cover story, Selene. I believe you're in charge of that. We're going to be looking at the use of uh, uh, pumps in pharmaceutical production, um, what kind of um, standards they're held to, and, and what kind of repair work is done on them. Um, also, we have some content on hydropower. It's, like I said, our, our water issue, although it's water and pumps, maybe, would be a better way to say it. Um, we revisit nuclear energy as well. Um, we had in April written a piece about nuclear energy, the nuclear option. I wrote that. Um, and we're revisiting um, nuclear energy, this time through the lens of safety. Obviously, um, one of the big arguments against nuclear energy is that it's considered unsafe by many people. Um, I would be of the opinion that that's a myth. Um, I think there's a lot of hard data that supports that. Uh, but we're going to be digging into it in more detail in the upcoming August issue and so forth. Anyone out there who's interested in nuclear energy and whether it is or isn't safe and also what kind of technological advances have been made in regard to safety, um, that will be August's safety column, and so you can um, sort of open up and, and dip into that. And um, so in any case, I, I think this has been a good show. It's been a, a brief show, but I think it's a good one. We have a lot of other good content coming up on the horizon in print and uh, and on the air. And so I just want to thank all of our loyal readers and listeners for sitting down with us. Um, and I hope everyone stays healthy. <laughs>